0: I have up here a chart showing uh, the sort of gross domestic product for the past 14 years, or the change in gross domestic product for the past 14 years, for four of the major economies in the world, the US, uh, China, the Eurozone, and Japan. And you may be able to notice without the details, uh, but you can tell right where the kind of the says global financial crisis, that is the Great Recession, in 2008, and you can see the negative effect they had that had on the economic output of the world. But compare that with uh, what's labeled there the coronavirus pandemic, uh, much worse than even the Great Recession on the economic output of the world. Now there's been some recovery, but still I think 2020 went down in US history as the worst economic year since the end of World War II. And the point is, as you and I can experience and have known this firsthand, of course we've been through this plague and this pandemic, but think about this for a moment. COVID-19 I believe is a plague from God. Look at the economic devastation that brought to the world economy, but just one plague. Imagine what it will be like when God pours out the seven bowls of his wrath in Revelation 16, as we saw last week, where God pours out on the earth. The sun is scorching people. Uh, Everybody's got bowls and festering sores on them. There is literally the war to end all wars. Imagine what that will do to the economy. Imagine what that will do to the systems of the world. You see, COVID-19 is God's action in this world, and it's not simply about health. It's also about economics. It's also about systems, and we've seen that firsthand. Well, in Revelation 16, God is not giving one plague to the earth. He is pouring out his wrath for all of the sins of humanity on the earth. And the question is, imagine what will happen to the system's to the cities, to all the things on the earth. Revelation 17 and 18, which we just heard read to us, are rather confusing chapters, if we're honest. One thing to know about them as we get ready to study them, they are happening during Revelation 16. So Revelation 16 is going on, and Revelation 17 and 18 focus not on the big picture, which is the bowls of God wrath, but specifically what's going on with reference to what God calls Babylon. In order to understand what Revelation 17 and 18 are talking about, not just for what's coming in the future, but what God wants to say to us today, we need to understand what is Babylon. When God talks about Babylon in our chapters, What precisely is he talking about? Now in order to do that, in order to explain what Babylon is in Revelation 17 and 18, I need to tell you a story. It's a story that reaches far back into human history, starts very, very early with humanity, proceeds through human history to today and on into the future. So stick with me as we go through this story. Our story begins with the first human ever born on the planet. His name is Cain and he is the firstborn son of Adam and Eve. Cain grows up and when he's older, he introduces something horrendous into human history, murder. He kills his brother, Abel. His parents, Adam and Eve, had sinned, but this is far worse. Cain, in cold blood, murders his brother, Abel. As a result of this heinous crime, God curses Cain. And there are two parts to Cain's punishment. The first is God says to him, The blood of your brother cries out to me from the earth. Therefore, the earth will not yield for you its food. You can plant seed, but it's not gonna grow for you. The earth is not going to bring forth anything for you, Cain. And secondly, because you thought so little of your brother, because you cared so little for human companionship, for community, Cain, you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Well, what is Cain supposed to do? This is a harsh penalty. Not as harsh as he deserves. He murdered his brother. He should have been killed. Not as harsh as he deserved, but still very difficult. What are you going to do if you can't grow anything and you can't experience community? Well, Cain has two choices. The first choice is he could beg God for mercy. God loves Cain. He rightly should have put him to death for killing Abel, but he doesn't. Cain can cry out to God. The earth might, bring, might not bring forth food for Cain, but God can give him food. The earth might not provide him with community, but God can be his friend. And God is always merciful and God is always kind. And so Cain could have cried out to the Lord for mercy and help and trusted God to sustain his life when the earth wouldn't. Or secondly, Cain can simply on his own try to come up with ways to deal with the problems he's created in his life. And by the way, when we choose to sin, we're always faced with those same two choices. You can always cry out to God for mercy. He is always merciful. You can seek help from him to mitigate the consequences of your own sins. Or you and I can try to make do on our own to try to deal with the struggles that we have apart from God. Unfortunately, Cain chooses the second option. He does not cry out to God. He simply says, okay, well, here's the hand I've been dealt. The earth is not going to give me any food. I'm cursed to be a restless wanderer on the earth. And he sets out to solve his own problem apart from God. And the solution he comes up with is an ingenious solution. You see, Cain is not only the person who introduces murder into human history, he also invents something. He invents something that is still around today and is so utterly common that we don't even think about it, that it had to be invented. Cain invents the city. He's the first person in human history to build a city. Now, why a city? Well, if the ground won't produce food for you, you can buy it at a market. Other people are able to produce food, you can buy it from them. And if you are destined to be a restless wanderer, well, a city is a place you can find community. A city is a place where you can deal with loneliness. And so Cain invents the city, And he builds the first city in human history and he names that city Enoch. And the story that I want to tell you this morning in order to understand what's going on in Revelation 17 and 18 is the story of the city. And the first chapter in the story is that Cain invents the city and builds the first city in human history, for the purpose of dealing with the effects of sin apart from God. Cain does not look to God to help him with scarcity or with loneliness. He builds a city to do those things. And in his city, he can get food. And in his city, he can get community. And so the city in its origins was built to deal with the effects of sin apart from the mercies of God. Well, if you're turning through the pages of the book of Genesis, the next chapter in the story of the city is just a few passages later in the book of Genesis, although it's hundreds of years later. And it has to do with a man named Nimrod. Nimrod lives hundreds and hundreds of years after Cain. And he's described as being a mighty warrior, a mighty warrior on the earth. And the Bible does not present what Nimrod does favorably. Nimrod is a great warrior who through force and aggression founds a number of cities. The most famous of which are the one most connected with him is the city of Nineveh. Nineveh is a great city. We will hear a lot about Nineveh throughout the Bible, but a wicked city associated with Nimrod who does not build cities through the fruit of the spirit. He builds cities by force and by aggression. That is the next time that the word city is used after Cain City. So we begin with the first city of human history, which is named Enoch. And then we have this city of Nineveh, Continuing on with the story of the city in the Bible, we get to Genesis chapter 11. And in Genesis chapter 11, we read this verse. The people who are living in the Shinar plain say, Come, let us build ourselves a what? A city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the earth. God had commanded Noah, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. This group of people in direct disobedience to God decide we don't wanna be scattered. We don't wanna travel to the corners of the earth. We wanna stay right here. And the thing they do in defiance of God is they build a city. And in that city, they build a tower because they want to make a name for themselves. This introduces skyscrapers, which are forever associated with cities from this point on. We refer to this skyscraper as the Tower of Babel. But the name of the city, which comes from the tower, is Babylon. This is where Babylon is comes from. And here we have introduced for the first time the word that we're hearing in Revelation 17 and 18. But there's more to the story, so we don't just fast forward to Revelation 17 and 18. We got to keep going in what's happened in the story of the city. After Enoch and what was next? Nineveh and then Babylon, the next city that we meet in human history is the city of Sodom. Sodom is a city in which the wickedness and evil of humanity is played out on a grand scale. Pride, sexual immorality, lack of hospitality. The people in Sodom have banded together as a city to directly defy not just one of God's commands, but seemingly all of God's commands. And in the city, they are able to be, so they think, protected from God's wrath and judgment and free to live however they want. God, however, in a preview of what is coming in the book of Revelation, rains down on the city of Sodom, fire and brimstone, destroying it. To ashes. The fifth city in our story of the city is named Memphis. Not the one in Tennessee. You may not be as familiar with this city name and that's because although the Bible does sometimes refer to it as Memphis, it usually just calls it the city. And in the book of Exodus, the city is referring to Memphis because Memphis is the capital of of the Egyptian empire. Memphis is the city in which Pharaoh reigns and rules. It is the fountainhead of the empire. And it's from this city, Memphis, that the children of Israel will be enslaved. This is the city in which they are put into captivity and enslaved. And does anybody know what Pharaoh has the children of Israel do while they're in slavery? They build cities to store Pharaoh's treasure. And so they are engaged in building cities under the slavery of the city of Memphis until God sends Moses into the city of Memphis to bring the people of Israel out of the city of Memphis to worship him in the wilderness. Chapter 6 of our story of the city is the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the most important city in the land promised to the children of Israel. It has a beautiful history, but only after about 500 years. Before that time, Jerusalem is an outpost of disobedience in the land of Canaan. When Israel comes into the land, they are told to conquer all of the cities and to get rid of the people who live in the land because their sins are so great in God's sight. Joshua and the people are able to conquer much of the land, but there is one stronghold that remains for hundreds of years after Joshua. And it's the Jebusite city of Jerusalem. And because these people have banded together in the walled city of Jerusalem, they are able to resist God's will and God's people in defiance against God for hundreds of years until God raises up a warrior king named David who invades the last stronghold of Canaanites in the land of Israel and takes the city of Jerusalem and dedicates it to the Lord. The final chapter in our story of the city has to do with the city of Rome. Rome is the city that is in power at the time when John is writing the book of Revelation. Rome is the city that is the source of the greatest empire in the world. And John is a victim of Roman power. Rome has exiled John to the island of Patmos and Rome is the one who is ruling over all that is happening. Rome is the greatest empire. It's the greatest city. And it's also guilty of the greatest sin in human history. Rome is guilty of crucifying its creator, of crucifying the Lord of glory. This happens under Roman Power and by Roman rule. Rome is referred to in our passage. If you know anything about the history of Rome, it is built on seven hills. When you hear in Revelation 17 the idea of seven hills, this is an oblique reference to the city of Rome. Rome also is given another name in the Bible. It's only called this once, but it's in 1 Peter. Do you know what it's called? Babylon. Peter refers to the city of Rome as Babylon, which is why we can't simply stop when Babylon is introduced in Genesis 11 because Babylon is not a particular city. But it is connected to all of these cities: Enoch and Nineveh, Babylon, Sodom, Memphis, Jerusalem, Rome, Paris, Istanbul, New York, London, Beijing, Mumbai, the cities of the world, which started with Cain's attempt. To deal with the problems of sin apart from God. So, if you have your Bible still open, look in Revelation 17. What is this Babylon that we are talking about? Verse 18 of chapter 17. Babylon is represented in this vision as a prostitute, but verse 18 tells us the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Babylon is not a particular city. It is the idea of a city. All of these cities in human history exemplify exactly what Cain was doing, dealing with the problems of scarcity, the problems of loneliness, the results of sin in this world, but doing so apart from God. And what Babylon represents are the cities of the world and even broader than that, the systems of the world. Babylon is capitalism, it's communism, it's socialism. It's democracy, it's free markets. The emphasis, you heard it as it was read, is on markets and economics. It's businesses, it's markets, it's wealth, it's all of the industry that goes together. It is humans' attempts to manage what's going on in this world, to deal with the problem of scarcity, the fact that we the earth does not produce enough goods for everybody, to deal with the problem of scarcity and the problem of community, but apart from God. I took this picture yesterday of the Wall Street Journal article, which summarizes exactly the point I'm trying to make. It ran yesterday in Saturday's Wall Street Journal. Can you see the title? Capitalism is what will defeat COVID. Capitalism is Babylon. This is what's being talked about here. COVID is a plague, a problem from God as a result of the wickedness of human sin. And this author thinks, this writer thinks, what's going to deal with this problem? Capitalism. That's Babylon. You could simply read Babylon is what will defeat COVID. And if you read that article, there is nothing in there about Jesus. There is nothing in there about repentance. There is nothing in there about crying out to God for mercy. What's in there is we're going to mobilize the systems of capitalism to defeat COVID. The businesses, the industry, the science, the technology, the distributions, the free markets, that's what's going to overcome COVID. That is exactly, thank you, Lord, for having this article appear in the Wall Street Journal on Saturday, yesterday. That is exactly what Babylon is. Babylon is capitalism, it's communism, it's socialism, it's democracy, it's free markets, as exemplified in the cities of Beijing and Mumbai and New York and Rome and Sodom and Enoch. Humans' attempts to deal with the problems in this world introduced by sin, but to do so apart from God. So that's what Revelation 17 and 18 is talking about. It's talking about the destruction that's coming of all those things. What's the purpose for which God picked these passages for us today? I think there are three points that we should take out of what's coming in Revelation 17 and 18 for how we think through and live our lives today. Point number one, you and I, are to engage well with the cities and systems of this world. Look with me in Revelation 18, verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes." In Revelation 18, right near the end of time, God calls to Christians and says, come out, come out of her, come out of the cities of the world, come out of the systems of the world, come out of capitalism and socialism and communism, come out of those things. Which implies that until Revelation 18, we are engaged with those things. We are participants in the cities of the world, that we are involved in the systems that we will finally be called out of at some point, but today that point has not come. And so the encouragement is engage well with the cities and systems of this world. Consider, for example, Joseph. Joseph lives during the city of Memphis and God calls Joseph to live in Memphis. He gets there because of his brother's sins. But when he's there, God calls on Joseph to engage with the economic systems as a means of blessing Pharaoh and a means of being a light of who God is to a lost world. And so what does Joseph do? Joseph taxes the people on their produce. He then stores what he gets in taxes. When the famine comes... Joseph then sells the produce at market prices as a blessing to Pharaoh and to the whole world. And because Joseph has engaged well with the city of Memphis and the systems of government set up by Pharaoh and engages in the market economics of the time, he is able to be God's representative and blessing in the system. Or consider the apostle Paul. Apostle Paul is a Roman citizen. He lives during the city of Rome. He acknowledges he's a Roman citizen. He uses the blessings of being a Roman citizen to help spread the gospel. He travels on Roman roads. He plants churches in Roman cities. He engages with Roman Government and Paul makes use of the Roman economic system to be able to distribute financial benevolence to people who are in trouble. This is someone engaging well with the systems of the world, engaging well with the cities of the world. What does that mean for you and I today? Own a business, run a lemonade stand, raise a cow for 4 H. Study political science. Be a lawyer. Engage in law enforcement. Be part of what's happening. Study and understand how capitalism works. Understand the systems of this world. Be in government. Engage with the cities and systems of this world. Be a Joseph. Be a Paul, be a Lydia who owns her own business as a seller of purple. Be a Priscilla and Aquila who are using their tent making skills in the economic systems as a means of advancing the kingdom of God. Be a Daniel who engages well with government officials. The first point from these passages is yes, there will come a day in which God destroys all this stuff but until that day comes, be a good citizen with these systems. Engage with these cities and these systems for the glory of Jesus and the advancement of his kingdom. Point number two. Do not be influenced by the cities and systems of this world. Do not be influenced by the cities and systems of this world. If point number one is be in the city, point number two is don't be of the city. Consider the example of Abraham and Lot. I have a passage from Genesis chapter 13. Abram lived, that's Abraham, lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain And pitched his tents near what? Sodom, the city of Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord. The problem with Lot is he lives near the city of Sodom. And then pretty soon he lives in the city of Sodom. And then Lot is going to war with the citizens of the city of Sodom against others. And then pretty soon his daughters are married to men of Sodom. And he has become engrossed in the city of Sodom so much so that when God is going to rain down fire on the city of Sodom, Abraham has to intervene with God, rescue Lot out of the midst of the city in which he let himself get pulled into. And the warning in Revelation 18 come out of the city. That's echoed in 2 Corinthians 6. Yes, we live in the cities and the systems of this world. Yes, we are a part of what is going on all around us, but we must not let it take too hold of our hearts. We must not allow it to sink into our minds and our souls and our spirits. And if we're honest, some of us have drunk too deeply from the Babylons of this world. And that we have taken hook, line and sinker, capitalism or democracy or free markets or socialism. Some of us sound just like the non-Christian professors at our universities who are teaching us. Some of us sound exactly like Fox News or the Wall Street Journal or CNN or the New York Times. And we have drunk deeply from the well of the systems of this world. Some of us spend way too much time defending democracy or capitalism or free markets or socialism or whatever it may be and not nearly enough time engaging with Jesus. And the encouragement is be in the systems, use the systems, be blessed by the systems, bless others through the systems, but do not take the thinking of the systems into your heart some of us cannot hear the call of god to give away money because the systems of economics in this world are so deeply ingrained in us and point number two is hey look be in the city but don't be of the city you can appreciate the good that god is doing but don't drink the kool-aid And if you sound just like the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or Fox News or CNN, something has gone terribly wrong. Point number three. Rejoice over the coming destruction of these cities and systems of this world. Turn over to verse 20 of chapter 18. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. It's actually a command from the Lord, rejoice. Rejoice over the destruction of Babylon. Now we gotta be careful. We never rejoice over the destruction of people. We do not rejoice over people being sent to an eternity separated from God. There is nothing to rejoice about there. But there are no individuals being judged in Revelation 17 and 18. The punishment on individuals happens in Revelation 16. What we are being commanded to rejoice over in Revelation 17 and 18 is the destruction of the city, the buildings, the systems, the markets, the businesses, all of those things. I love this quote from Winston Churchill speaking about democracy. He said, many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all wise indeed it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time it's witty I agree with it I would say the same thing about capitalism I would say the same thing about the free market economy and the point is, if you're simply comparing democracy to communism or if you're comparing capitalism to socialism, yes, you might be able to say, well, I, I, I tend to like democracy better. I tend to like free markets better. That's fine. But when compared to the kingdom of God, they're all corrupt. Corrupt. And they're all wicked and every single one of them falls short of what it is that God wants for people. It's no accident that the end of the Bible, God devotes two chapters to the destruction of the systems of this world and he expects Christians to stand up and cheer. Yes, you may think that capitalism is better than socialism. That's perfectly fine. You may think that democracy is better than fascism. Great. But when compared to the kingdom of God, all the systems, even the very best ones of humanity, fall so far short of what God wants. None of them are based on love or generosity or kindness or compassion or for forgiveness. There's a reason why. Does anyone know the final chapter of the story of the city in the Bible? What is the last city mentioned for eternity? The New Jerusalem. And where is it coming from? Heaven. Because when God looks at the cities of the earth, when he looks at Enoch and Nineveh and Babylon and Sodom and Memphis, and Jerusalem, and Rome, and New York, and Grand Rapids, and Beijing. He does not see any city or any system that deserves to continue for eternity. If any of the systems of humanity were worth keeping, God would keep them. Instead, he judges them all is having fallen short. And to be honest, some of us as Christians are so tied up in the systems of this world and the cities of this world, we think to ourselves, well, I don't really want Grand Rapids to be destroyed. I own a lot of property here. Or I don't really want capitalism to go down because, man, do you, just, you look what COVID did to my stock account. And Revelation 17 and 18 is a call to say, if that's where we are, we haven't looked at the systems of this world with God's eyes. There is much to be grateful for. There's much to engage well in. But ultimately, as Christians, you and I should be longing for our citizenship from heaven to come down. Paul was a Roman citizen, but that's not where he thought his real citizenship was. He thought his real citizenship was in heaven and he couldn't wait for the day when the city of heaven came to replace the city of Rome. Some of us are hoping that the city of heaven doesn't come just yet because we got a lot of cool stuff going on in the city of Rome. And God says it ought not be that way. Okay, these are big theological concepts. This is important stuff. I'm glad we took the time to go through this. Thank you for listening that. But practically speaking, what do you do today? This isn't an economics class. We're not here to talk about political science. What should you and I today do, today, to put into practice these principles? I have one suggestion. Let's call it more than a suggestion. Let's call it an assignment. It's an assignment that I think will allow us individually to do all the things I said today in one thing. And here it is. Give some money away today. Give some money away today. You can give it to the Jonathan Fund. That's a fund we have at church to help people who are suffering. You're gonna hear some more about that in just a second. You can give it to the church. Now this is above and beyond. I'm saying give some money away today above and beyond your regular tithes and offerings. You can give it anonymously to a person. You can give it to a nonprofit in the name of Jesus. Just give some money away today. It can be a lot. It can be a little. This is our assignment because it does these three things. Number one, when you give the money and it goes to a person who's suffering, they're gonna use it in the economy to help themselves to be a blessing. When you give it to a church, we're gonna pay salaries with those things. When you give it to somebody in need, they're going to use it. And that is us embracing and engaging well with the systems of this world. We're using the world's currency and we're using the world's systems and we're doing it as a blessing. Number two, what it does is it causes us not to be too invested in this world. This world teaches us to emphasize saving and spending. God's economy emphasizes giving. And when you give, you are letting go of that thing in your pocket, those dollars that so desperately want to own your heart. And simply giving money away keeps us from being too invested in the cities and systems of this world. And number three, what it does is when you give money in Jesus's name, you store up treasure in heaven. And Jesus says, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be as well. And if all your money is in 401k accounts or bank accounts or real estate or in possessions or PlayStation 5s or whatever it may be tied up in, you're not going to want the city of heaven to come to earth because this is where all your stuff is. But if your treasure's in heaven, if that's where your rewards are, if that's your, where your retirement account is, if that's what you're looking forward to, then you're gonna be longing for the destruction of the systems of this world and for the coming of your rewards from heaven. And so one simple act accomplishes all three points at once. And so consider today, not your tithes and offerings, not what you give regularly to the church to help us do the ministry we're supposed to do. Give some money away. A rich young ruler once came to Jesus and said, I want internal life. I want all this stuff we're talking about the future. Like, I want my future to be great. Jesus talks him through some pretty heady stuff and the guy doesn't seem to quite understand it. So Jesus boils it down and makes it pretty simple for him. he says, okay, just do this. Sell your stuff. Give the money to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. How do you put all this stuff into as simplest possible form. Sell some stuff. Give the money to those who are in need. You will have treasure in heaven. And come follow Jesus. Let's pray together. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, Seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.